Today we begin a new series, we begin a study, uh, we begin a journey through the book of Samuel. Now you'll note that I said book singular, not books, uh, because while Samuel is broken up into two books in our Bibles, there is a first and second Samuel. It's really one book, and the reason we have a first and second Samuel is because of the scroll length in the ancient world. Scrolls could only get so long, and when they filled up one scroll, they had to move on to the second, and so you had the first scroll of Samuel and the second scroll of, uh, of Samuel, but the two scrolls really were part of one big story, one book. So just like First and Second Kings are one book, just like First and Second Chronicles are one book, so First and Second Samuel are one book. Uh, today I want to introduce the book of Samuel and then I want to give you a preview of the first couple chapters so you can get a taste of what is to come. What do we know about the book of Samuel? Who wrote this book? Uh, in First Chronicles 29, uh, when it records the death of David, it says his deeds were written in the book of Samuel by Nathan, uh, by, by, says his deeds were written in the book of, by Samuel the seer, Nathan the prophet, and Gad the seer. Now that reference there in 1 Chronicles 29 is almost certainly a reference to this book, to the book of Samuel. Three authors combined to write it. It's named after Samuel, sort of like we oftentimes give, we call hymns by their first line. Uh, so it is here. We know Samuel could not have written the whole book because he dies before the story is over, but he must have written the first part of it, and so it takes its name from him. So he wrote part, then Nathan wrote a part, and then Gad wrote a part. So these three prophets together give us this book. Uh, just as there are three authors of this book, there are three main characters in this book. You have Samuel, Saul, and David. Uh, Samuel, of course, is the last of the judges, really, and he is uh, the kingmaker as he anoints both Saul and David to the office of king. Uh, this book begins in the period of the judges, and it ends with the monarchy, really with Israel uh, having entered into her, her golden age, kind of the zenith of her history. Uh, altogether, the book of Samuel covers about 150 years of Israel's history. There are about 40 years of Philistine oppression at the beginning, 30 years of Samuel's judgeship, and then the, uh, the kings Saul and David each reigned for about 40 years. So altogether, that's about 150 years. Uh, David became king about 1,000 B.C., about 1,000 years before the birth of Jesus. So that gives you some idea of when all of this happens. And the chronology does matter. I'm not going to go into the detail of all of this today. Maybe we'll talk about some of the, these things as we come. But let me give you an example of why the chronology matters and why it matters that you think about when things happen and how that interconnects with other things going on. Samuel in this book and Samson in the book of Judges are actually contemporaries. If you put all everything we have from Samuel and Judges together, you find that Samuel and Samson live at the same time. A, a lot of the book of Judges overlaps with the early part of Samuel. Samson and Samuel have a lot of parallels between them. Uh, they're born about the same time. Both are born to barren women. Both are lifetime Nazarites. Both fight the Philistines. Uh, Samson's 20-year rule as judge probably takes place between the battle of Aphek in 1 Samuel 4 when the Philistines win and the battle of Mizpah in 1 Samuel 7 when the Philistines are defeated. Now remember, Samson 
got captured. Just like the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant, Samson got captured as well. And they kept Samson in the Temple of Dagon, uh, which is the same place where they kept the Ark of the Covenant when they had captured that. Uh, But Samson, of course, got his strength back uh, over time when he was being held prisoner. And Samson, if you read in the book of Judges, you know he gave himself sacrificially in his death, destroying the house of Dagon and with it all the leaders of the Philistines who were gathered there. It seems right after that, Samuel led the Israelites into battle against the Philistines at Mizpah and won a very decisive victory. Samuel was able to win that victory over the Philistines because Samson had softened them up. So Samson and Samuel work in tandem as a kind of one-two punch uh, to take out the Philistines. Uh, The Philistines don't totally go away until David deals with them, Uh, but at least at that point the Israelites are no longer under Philistine rule. So Samuel and Samson have careers that are in sync. They work together. They're both judges. They're both heroes in Israel. Now I mentioned how this book traces out the uh, transition from judgeship to monarchy, from the period of, uh, of the judges to the time of the kings in Israel's history. That transition really begins to happen in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Uh, when the Israelites ask for a king, one question that always comes up is, was this a legitimate request when they asked for a king or was this sin on their part? We need to understand the transition that takes place in this book. We need to understand God always intended to give Israel a king. The book of Deuteronomy, for example, makes provision for a king, and it gives various laws that will govern the king when Israel has one. But one thing we can say is that Israel's timing is off. Uh, You might say they seize kingly glory prematurely, kind of like Adam seized kingly glory prematurely in the garden. Israel seizes kingly glory prematurely. They wanted the security they thought a king could bring them because they were still afraid of the Philistines. They were willing to give up freedoms for the sake of safety, which that might sound familiar. That might sound like a familiar theme. In fact, there are going to be a lot of political and social issues in this book that are very, very relevant to us today, and this is one of them. They're willing to give up their freedoms for the security that big government, that a monarchy could bring them. The thing is, they don't need a king to have security, and they should have known that. Uh, In 1 Samuel chapter 7, God has just defeated the Philistines for them. Then they ask for a king in the next chapter because they're still afraid of the Philistines. They didn't need a king. They had God as their king. God could give them security. God could give them victory if they trusted in him. God has just done that in chapter 7 right before they ask for a king. So they should have known. Worst of all, instead of asking for a godly king, they ask for a king like the other nations. They want a pagan king. They want a king who's going to reign over them like the Gentile kings, like the pagan kings. And so that's what they end up getting. And so their request is rightly understood as a rejection of God's rule over them, which really is characteristic of Israel in the whole period of the judges. If you read the book of Judges, there is that constant refrain, especially as you get to the end of the book, In those days, there was no king in Israel, so everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 
But when the book of Judges says that, it's really being ironic. There was a king in Israel. There was always a king in Israel. Yahweh was Israel's king. The Lord was Israel's king. And he showed them that again and again and again. But they continually cast him off and they refused to trust him. Uh, That's something we'll dig in more as we go. But that's one of the big issues in this book. Uh, The book of Samuel really has a pretty clear outline. There are a lot of different ways you can look at the structure of the book, and we will look at the literary structure of the book more as we get into it. But in terms of the big picture, in terms of the big picture structure of this book, Samuel is structured by three songs, or you could say three psalms that happen at the beginning, middle, and end. So it neatly divides the, the book into three Uh, these these three songs neatly divide the book up for us. You have Hannah's song at the beginning, celebrating a birth. Then you've got David's song in the middle, lamenting a death. And then there's another Davidic song at the end, celebrating a deliverance. So you've got Hannah's song of joy in 1 Samuel chapter 2, because God has given her a son, Samuel. David then sings a sad song in 2 Samuel chapter 1, right in the middle of the book, to mark the deaths of Saul and Jonathan, uh, and that's really the turning point in the book. And then David sings a, a song of joy at the end in 2 Samuel chapter 22 to praise God for delivering him from his enemies. It's another song of celebration. So those three songs really structure the book as a whole. Uh, one thing I hope you'll get from uh, our study of this book is really how to read other Old Testament narratives, how to read Old Testament stories in general. These are Holy Spirit-inspired accounts, Spirit-inspired stories, and it's important for us to understand how these stories work. We've got to learn to read them historically, literarily, and theologically. I'll talk sometimes about uh, reading the Bible in three dimensions, and these are the three dimensions I have in mind. History, literature, and theology. Uh, They're history. These are spirit-inspired narratives that record history. These things really happen. In fact, one interesting thing to think about with the book of Samuel is that we probably know more about David than any other individual from the ancient world because we've got so much information, such a, a detailed account of his life. We probably know more about David than anybody else who lived before the coming of Jesus, certainly. Uh, So this is history. We need to understand these things really happen. God is really at work in these historical events. They're literature. Samuel is a literary masterpiece. It is a carefully crafted, carefully structured work of literature. It uses symbolism and metaphor and puns and chiasms and other literary techniques to communicate its truth. And then we can say it is theology. These narratives are theology because through these narratives, God reveals himself. Truth about God is revealed. They're theological. Or really, it might even be better to say they are Christological. These narratives are theology, but really these narratives are Christology because they reveal Christ to us. Remember after Jesus' resurrection... In Luke chapter 24, uh, he's with his disciples, and he really leads his disciples in a Bible study. And he makes it clear to his disciples that the whole Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, the whole Old Testament is really about him. The whole Old Testament was given to reveal his sufferings and then the glory he would enter into. 
That is to say, the whole purpose of the Old Testament is to prefigure Jesus. It's all to prefigure the gospel. It foreshadows what is to come. God uses historical events in a prophetic way. God says, let me do something in the present to show you what I'm going to do in the future. And so these narratives, you can think of these stories in this way, they are records of the past that pointed ahead to the future. These stories contain a promise, a promise that comes to fulfillment in Christ and in his church. And this is really important for us to understand because it's not, as I pull Christ out of Samuel, I don't want you to think, oh, we're taking these Old Testament stories and we are Christianizing them as if we're imposing Christ on these stories. No, that's not the case at all. These are already Christian stories. They already point us to Christ. We just have to discover how. They were written, they were preserved, they were given to us in order to show us the sufferings and glory of Jesus. That's their design. God crafted the history and he crafted the recording of the history for that purpose. So by design, these stories are full of what we might call typology. They're full of types and shadows that come to fulfillment when Christ comes. So we should see very clearly as we go through this book that Jesus is the greater Samuel. Jesus is the greater David. The church is the greater Hannah. The events of this story point us to greater events accomplished through Christ and his church. And as we go through this work, we will see that kind of thing. Uh, I've already suggested that the book of Samuel covers uh, transitions in Israel's history. Uh, but this is something else we need to consider. If you ask, what is this book really about? God is providentially leading Israel into a new era. There are a number of transitions in Israel's history that take place in the book of Samuel. So again, this book covers the transition from the period of the judges to the period of the monarchy. So there is a governmental transition that takes place here. There are certain challenges that come with monarchy, but monarchy is more glorious. There's also a liturgical transition that takes place, and you can really get this if you trace out the movement of the Ark of the Covenant in this book. That's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is to think in terms of the central sanctuary, the sanctuary where God meets with his people. At the beginning of the book, the central sanctuary is the tabernacle. It's the Mosaic tabernacle, the, the tabernacle Moses had them build, and the tabernacle is at Shiloh. Now that tabernacle located at Shiloh is destroyed very early on in the story when the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant. But by the time you get to the end of this book, David has brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, a site for the building of the temple, for the building of Solomon's temple has been chosen and it's been set up. David is gathering the resources for that. So there's this transition. But it's also important to note that between those two events, the destruction of the tabernacle in Shiloh and then the building of the temple in Jerusalem, between those two events, the whole worship system that God gave to his people through Moses, the whole worship system that God set up in Exodus and Leviticus is not operating. It is not functioning. There's still something going on, and we'll get to that uh, eventually, but that mosaic system it's not working in this time. It's not operating. It's not 
functioning. So you really do have the introduction of something new here. There's a liturgical transition, a liturgical uh, transition that takes place in this book, and it's marked by a transition in the house of God, ultimately a movement from tabernacle to temple, from Shiloh to Jerusalem. But what happens in between when there is no tabernacle or no temple is really significant as well. And we're going to see that as we go. There's also a transition in this book from oppression to freedom, from Gentile rule to Israelite rule. At the beginning of the book, the Philistines are ruling over the Israelites. By the end of the book, David has completely eradicated the Philistine threat. They're gone for good. We never hear about the Philistines again. So you can say there's a political transition that takes place in this book. But the biggest transition that takes place within this book is the transition from Saul to David. From Saul's kingship to David's kingship, the transition from the house of Saul to the house of David. Saul is presented to us in this book as a new Adam. He's a perfect specimen of a man. He's kind of like a, David's going to defeat a giant, but Saul himself is kind of like a giant. He's a head taller than everybody else. He is a perfect man. He's got God's spirit. He's established in a new Eden-like situation. He's in an Edenic situation with God's blessing. He gets off to a good start as king, but then we're going to see he falls into sin. And his fall really recapitulates the fall of Adam in the garden. Saul falls, and then he falls again and again, and he sinks deeper and deeper into rebellion, hardening his heart more and more. The Holy Spirit is taken from him. His story is a tragic story. But if you think of Saul as an Adam figure, if he's the first Adam in this story, when the first Adam falls, what do you need? You need a second Adam who can come and take his place and do what the first Adam should have done. And in this book, the second Adam, the last Adam, is David. And so the book of Samuel is really a tale of two Adams. That's really the best way to understand this book. You have Adam number one, that's Saul, he falls. And so Adam number two comes along, that's David. David comes and takes his place. He is what Saul should have been. Saul is the head of Israel, but he rebelled. David is then promised the kingdom, but David doesn't seize that kingdom. He waits patiently for God to give it to him. He resists the temptation to seize the kingdom and seize kingly glory for himself ahead of time. He even patiently endures persecution from his rival as Saul pursues him again and again. See, David is a man after God's own heart. He's not a king like the kings of the nations. He's a godly king. Now, of course, David isn't perfect. He sins, and he sins egregiously. In some ways, you could argue that he sins worse than Saul did. But unlike Saul, he repents, and so he is restored. David's sins tell you that while he is the second Adam in this story, he's not truly the last Adam. Rather, what David is is a type or a foreshadowing of the last Adam. Jesus, of course, will be the last Adam. He will be the true second Adam. Jesus will be the greater David. But David gives us categories for understanding who Jesus will be when he comes. There are all kinds of parallels between David and Jesus. David's life and ministry and Jesus' life and ministry. So, for example, David is a skull crusher. He is the seed of the woman who crushes the seed of the serpent. In this case, that's Goliath. And Goliath is dressed up in scaly, snake-like armor. 
And David kills him with a head wound. You can see it as a fulfillment along the way to a greater fulfillment, but it's a fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. David, like Jesus, loves his enemies. David, like Jesus, does not exalt himself but humbly serves. God makes a covenant with David, and David is called God's son. His throne is identified with God's throne. David has his band of disciple warriors, his band of merry men, his mighty men who go with him, who travel with him, just like Jesus has his disciples. David suffers at Saul's hand, though he is innocent. He's an innocent sufferer, and then David is ultimately vindicated against the one who has accused him. David, of course, is a singer of songs. He's a prayer of prayers. David writes the psalms, many of the psalms, which Jesus then takes on his lips and makes his own prayers and songs. So Jesus is the new David, the greater David in that way. See, there's all kinds of ways in which Jesus patterns his life after David's life. There are all kinds of parallels between David's life and Jesus' life. Uh, perhaps most significantly is the Davidic covenant itself in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where David is told he will have a son, and this son of David, great David's greater son, will fulfill all of God's promises and will rule eternally. And so that Davidic covenant points ahead to Jesus. You could say David paves the way for Jesus. Now, that's all by way of introduction. Uh, I want to spend a few more minutes, This I've, I've given you kind of an introduction to the book as a whole, I want to spend a few more minutes here talking about the early chapters of the book, and this will really set the stage for how we're going to look at this in a little bit more depth uh, in the weeks to come. How does the book begin? Well, we read it this morning. It begins with a barren woman. Barrenness, no doubt, is one of the most painful trials anyone can endure. To long for a child, to have a desire for a child. It's a good desire. God commanded us to be fruitful and to multiply. He commanded us to have children. Children are a blessing. To desire a child and to not have one leaves a huge hole in one's life. To have love, but to have no object on which to bestow that love is truly agonizing. This is Hannah's plight at the beginning of the story. Hannah is hurting, and we can see her pain jump off the page here at the beginning of the story. It's interesting how today many people intentionally pursue infertility. They intentionally reject the blessing of children altogether. I would say there's usually something unnatural about that when that happens. For most people, for most of history, barrenness has been understood as a great disappointment, a great trial. Certainly that was Hannah's experience. She had a longing for a child. She had a love for a child, but no child to, to, to pour out that love upon. But for Hannah, as for many of the barren women of the Old Covenant, her childlessness is more than a personal crisis. Yes, it is a personal crisis. We don't want to downplay that. It is. But it's more than that. It's also a covenantal crisis. It's a national crisis. In a way, her dead womb is a symbol of Israel's condition. Israel was to be fruitful and multiply. Israel was to extend godly dominion over the earth. Israel is not fulfilling God's plan. Why would this be? Why would her childlessness be a covenantal crisis or a national crisis? Why do we meet so many barren women in the Old Testament? 
When we meet these barren women in the Old Testament, again, it's not just about their personal sorrow and hardship. It's about something much more than that. Think about it this way. The Old Covenant promise means salvation is of the Jews. That Jesus said that. Salvation is of the Jews. They all knew that. And how would that salvation come? How would salvation for the world come through the Jewish people? Well, it would come through a child. Israel existed in order to bring the promised seed into the world. You might think of the seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman who will come and crush the serpent's head, or the seed of Abraham in Genesis 12 who would bring blessing to all nations, who would replace the curse upon all the nations with blessing. Salvation is of the Jews, and that salvation will come through a child. Hannah wants to be part of that. She wants to keep the seed line going in Israel. But we can be even more specific than that. Hannah knows Israel is in the midst of a mess. She knows that Israel is in shambles. The nation is in shambles. See if this sounds familiar to you. The elites who governed the nation of Israel in Hannah's day, the elites who influenced its culture, were completely corrupt and completely incompetent. Does that sound familiar to you? She lived in a day when the leadership of the nation was disastrous. They were incompetent and corrupt. Think about our elites, how our situation might parallel hers. What have we seen over the last few generations in our nation? We've seen elites marginalize the church and try to silence faithful voices. Our elites have utterly destroyed the family. They've emasculated men. They've, they've tried to, to push mothers into the workforce to separate them from their young children. Uh, they've undermined fathers and they've subsidized illegitimacy. They've promoted abortion and they've imposed same-sex unions on us. They're now imposing transgenderism on us. They have destroyed trust in all our major institutions. Can you name a major institution that still has the trust of most of the American people? They've destroyed the media, they've destroyed health care, they've destroyed once great universities in our nation, they have divided us against each other with class warfare and critical race theory, they've destroyed jobs and they've stolen wealth, they've squandered our nation's global influence and made a disaster of our foreign policy. Our elites have shed blood all over the world. Our elites have set a terrible example through their hypocrisy. They've used their power to enrich themselves, using their power for personal enrichment. Almost all, I'm not going to say absolutely all, but almost all of our elites are utterly incompetent at what they do. Most show no desire to serve the common good today. They just serve themselves. And of course, if this goes on unchecked, they will destroy utterly whatever is left of a once great civilization. They'll destroy whatever is left of Christendom, of Western civilization. It is crumbling right now. And you might ask the question, what can we do in the face of such powerful wickedness? When the elites who rule your land are wicked, what can you do? Well, Hannah lived in a world like that. A world a lot like ours. A world that was falling apart unfaithfulness among Israel's leadership especially had made them pawns of the Philistines. They're actually living under the domination of a foreign power, a pagan power. That was humiliating in itself. But then within the nation itself, within Israel, the powers of church and state were rotten through and through. They were corrupt 
to the core. You see this in chapter 1. Chapter 1 really highlights the sins of Eli and his sons. They are, this is the high priestly family. These are the, the leaders of the church in Israel at this point in history. Eli is utterly incompetent as the high priest. That's obvious. He's worthless as a teacher. He's worthless as a liturgy. He can't even recognize pious prayer when Hannah prays. He accuses her being drunk. That's how clueless he is. That's how lacking he is in discernment. He's also worthless as a father. He disapproves what his sons do, but he doesn't use his office to restrain them. And Eli's sons have gone off the rails even more than he has. They use their power and privilege and family connections in selfish ways. They're stealing food that belongs to God under the law. There was certain food from the sacrifices that belonged to the priests, but they're stealing God's food, the food that belongs to God. It's blasphemous. It's sacrilegious. They're sleeping with the women at the tabernacle. They're acting like total pagans in the house of God, like, like, like Moses set up some kind of sex cult at the tabernacle. That's what it's like. That's what they're doing to the worship of God. Again, the nation is in chaos and in rebellion. The elites have failed the people. Hannah knows the nation needs a change. And that's part of the reason why she is so desperate to have a son. She wants to give birth to a son who might prove to be a redeemer, who might come and transform and restore the nation of Israel. And that's why she's willing to give her son up. If God will give her a son, she will give that son back. If God will give her a son, she will give her son back to the Lord. She will dedicate him to God's service as a Nazarite. What's a Nazarite? We'll look at this more as we go, but Nazarites were special warriors. Nazarites could say, we're on a mission from God. They were special warriors, set apart, lived under special rules, with a special task, a special mission. She says, my son will be a Nazarite. He'll live his whole life on a mission for God. So obviously she doesn't just want a child for herself. So she can enjoy all the perks of motherhood. She wants a child for the sake of her people and her place. She wants a son who can lead the nation in a reformation. Who could lead a revolution in righteousness for the whole nation of Israel. And indeed that is what happens. And that's why she can sing the song she does. Because she knows that if God is granting her a son... God is rescuing the nation. So often when God does something great in the Old Covenant, it starts with a barren woman and then a baby. And of course that continues right up to John the Baptist and then ultimately Jesus who is born of the ultimate barren womb, that of a virgin. The birth of her son, she knows what it means. The birth of her son will mean the rebirth of Israel. Because the birth of a miracle child in Israel's history always means God is doing something new. It always means God is bringing redemption. And that's why she can sing her song in chapter 2 with such joy and confidence. She knows a great reversal is coming. And her song is really aimed at those corrupt elites who have been destroying the nation of Israel. When she sings about the arrogant being brought low, she's talking about Eli and his sons and others like them, people who are in high positions of power, who are arrogant 
her using their power in self-serving ways. She says they will be brought low. When she talks about the bows of the mighty being broken, she's probably talking about their Philistine oppressors. When she says the Lord kills and makes alive, she's really singing about the death and resurrection of Israel. Israel needs to be put to death and raised up in a new form. When she sings about the pillars, she's really talking about God building a new house for himself. She knows the current house has been defiled. The tabernacle's been defiled. God needs a new house in which to dwell. She talks about the pillars of that house. And when she ends her song describing God giving strength to his king, well, that's really surprising that she would sing about a coming king. But she sings this way because she knows God is going to give the people a king who will rule in righteousness, who will rule as a reflection of God's way of ruling. And she knows that her son will have something to do with this. She knows her son will have a hand in bringing that king to power. And indeed, he does, as Samuel is the one who anoints David. Now, let me make application of this as we wrap up. The question is sometimes asked, does cultural change come from above or below? If we're strategizing how to change our culture, how how does it happen? How do cultures get changed? Does cultural change come from the bottom up or from the top down? Is it the grassroots that change culture or do you have to have new elites to change the culture? Well, the reality is you have to have both and the book of Samuel shows us this. Think about it. Does God like to work on a very public stage where everybody can see what he's doing out in the open? Or does God like to work behind the scenes? Does God like to use the rich and the powerful and the well-connected to bring change? Or does God like to use the little guy and the little gal to bring change? Well, again, it's really all of the above, and we see this in Samuel. The Reformation in Israel definitely starts off behind the scenes with Hannah. Who is Hannah? She's certainly not powerful. She's got a husband that loves her. That's wonderful. But her husband has taken another wife, so she's got to share him with another woman. She has no status, really, to speak of, because in that culture, a woman's status was very much tied to childbearing. And she's barren. She has no child. She has no status, no clout, no power, no influence. What she does have is faith. What she does have is faith in the Lord's promises. And so she takes her broken heart and she takes all her despair to the Lord in prayer. She's not drinking in wine. She's pouring out her soul before the Lord in prayer. And the Lord is delighted to answer her prayer. She prays out of her humility and weakness and brokenness. And the Lord is delighted to answer her. See, Hannah helps bring change from the bottom up. You might say Hannah is a grassroots culture warrior. She's got no clout, no wealth, no political power, no influence, no office. All she has is her faith. And so what does she do? She prays, and through her prayers, a massive renewal in Israel is started. All those transitions we talked about, they all start with Hannah's prayer. Her prayers knock over that first domino. Knocking over that first domino, that's the first in a chain of events that ultimately leads to Israel's greatest glory days. How did Israel get to her glory days? It started with the prayers of a barren woman. But that's not the only way God works in this period of history. We see God working from the bottom up, but we also see God working from the top down. We see God working through elites, those who have 
power and office and status and who want to use their power, office, and status in righteous ways. Certainly this becomes true of Samuel. It's true of David. These are men God raises up to high places. God exalts them. And at their best, they use their power to serve the good of the nation and advance godly purposes, a godly agenda in the nation. See, Hannah's prayers bring change from the bottom up. But Samuel and David then engage in the godly exercise of power and influence to bring change in the nation from the top down. And that is so often how God works in history. God uses the weak who call out to him for help, and God uses the powerful who humbly use their power to serve. That's how the early church brought the Roman Empire to its knees. The Roman Empire was the most powerful empire the world had ever known, and yet Christians conquered it without lifting a sword. How did they do it? Well, it really started with a lot of powerless Christians who faithfully went about their business day after day, worshiping, praying, witnessing, serving, loving their families, loving their neighbors, faithfully enduring persecution when it came. They worked from the bottom up to bring change. But you know what happened along the way? We can talk about how they worked from the bottom up until God converted Constantine. And Constantine had a vision of a cross in the sky. It's kind of a weird event, but he becomes a Christian. And then God also began to bring cultural change from the top down. Constantine didn't impose the Christian faith on the, on the empire, but he did start to outlaw a lot of the worst forms of uh, uh, paganism, the worst pagan practices, and he encouraged the church and supported the church. We wouldn't have the, the Council of Nicaea and the Nicene Creed without Constantine's contribution, without his leadership. He brings change from the top down. The emperor, the most elite of them all, accelerated the process of discipling and Christianizing the empire by how he used his power. No, he was not perfect. We shouldn't expect that, especially since he was the first Christian emperor. He had a lot to learn. But his leadership, the way he used his power, the seeds were being planted of a glorious Christian civilization, a civilization full of truth and goodness and beauty. The Reformation in the 16th century really happened in the same way. You had Martin Luther, who was a monk, a mere monk. He had no power, no wealth, no status. He was just a man with his Bible, a man studying his Bible, then trying to share with others what he had learned. But Luther, the little guy, was willing to stand up to most powerful people in the Holy Roman Empire, including the Pope. He was willing to put his life on the line to proclaim the truth he had learned from scripture. You might say with Martin Luther, the Reformation was a grassroots, roots, bottom-up cultural movement. Luther was just a, a, a monk in the backwoods of Germany, but he helped change the world. But guess what? Luther, from the grassroots, never could have brought about that Reformation without help from the top down. The Reformation never could have happened without help from the wealthy, the powerful, and the well-connected. See, without the help and protection of Prince Frederick, without the help and protection of a prince, Luther would have been killed and the Reformation would have ended almost as soon as it began. But the prince was committed to protecting Luther. He believed Luther's words and he wanted to use his power as prince to protect Luther and promote his teachings. And so he used his power and position to further the work of Reformation. Frederick kept Luther safe. 
When others were seeking to kill him, when there was a price on his head, Frederick protected Luther so he could continue studying and writing, so he could translate the, the, the New Testament into German. The Reformation changed the world. It changed the culture. And how did it happen? From the bottom up, yes, but also from the top down. The fall of communism. If we had time, I would talk about this. The fall of communism in the Soviet Union and in Eastern Europe. Same kind of thing. You can point to top down and bottom up dynamics that brought about that incredible change. Look, there is no reason why God cannot bring rebirth and renewal to our culture today. There's no reason why God can't bring the same kind of change and transformation to our civilization today. We want to live in a Christian culture, right? We all want to live in a Christian civilization. We want to live in a discipled nation, a nation that conforms to God's ways, to God's truth, to God's wisdom. That's the goal of the church's mission. At least you could say that's the earthly and historical goal of the church's mission, to create that kind of culture, a discipled culture, a discipled nation. But it seems like everything is moving in the other direction right now. It seems like everything is against us. There is not a single major institution in American life that is on our side in this. And so we might ask, what hope could we possibly have? Well, the book of Samuel helps us here. It gives us hope. As we go through this book, we are not only going to find all kinds of encouragement for our personal lives, which certainly we will because this book shows God's mercy and grace and forgiveness to his people, even in hard times, even when they've sinned in terrible ways. But we will also find all kinds of wisdom and guidance for the great social, cultural, and political questions of our day. We will see patterns of God's providential working in this book that still hold true today. In Hannah's day, what did God do? Just when it looked like things could not get any worse, God acted. Just when it looked like things were over for Israel, God brought renewal. God gave Israel a fresh start. God brought Israel into a new age, a new era. God raised up godly leaders. God brought in a new golden age for the nation. Think it can't happen today? Why not? Why can't it happen? Why couldn't it happen? Why can't God do for us what he did for Hannah in her day as well? Do what you can, where you are, with what you have. If you are powerful and influential and well-connected, if that's you, you're one of the elites, then use your influence to serve godly ends and to advance God's kingdom. Use your resources to promote the fulfilling of the Great Commission, to uh, promote the discipling of our nation, our culture. Christians should not shy away from power and from exercising power. Power is always going to be exercised. It never goes away. It just shifts around. So it's just a question of who is exercising it. Uh, sometimes Christians act like it's more godly or more righteous to not have power. That, 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 that we would be more righteous if we're always weak, always poor, always lacking in influence. It's more righteous for us to just let the unbelievers be in charge of everything. Let them have all the power. That's not true at all. 
We need Samuels and Davids. We need Constantines and Fredericks. We need Christians who are competent, who excel as leaders, who are competent at their craft and in their vocation. We need Christians who know how to network and to inspire confidence and build a following. We need Christians who know how to use power in a righteous way. It can be done. It has been done. It will be done again. We need to understand that. If that's you, If you're well-connected, if you're elite, use your power to godly ends. If that's not you, if you're a nobody, if you don't have your hands on the levers of power, if you're weak in this way, what do you do? Don't mope. Don't panic. Don't give up hope. Do what you can where you are with what you have. You can always do something, no matter how weak you think you are. You can certainly do what Hannah did. You can pray. And you can sing songs of praise. And know that prayer and song are among the most potent weapons there are. You may think, oh, I don't have any power. Well, actually, if you can pray and if you can sing praises to God, you've got access to the greatest power there is. See, in Samuel, God tells us a story, and it's a story we need to know. It's a story full of twists and turns, but it's also a story full of hope. Because it shows us God at work to lead his people through a series of transitions. God leading his people through times of chaos and upheaval to a time of peace and prosperity and glory. God can bring change. And God will bring change. God is a good storyteller. God loves come from behind victories. God loves last second reversals. We've got to know what kind of story we're living in. Samuel will show us. Who knows? Maybe your prayers will be the first domino to fall. Maybe your prayers will push over that first domino that then sets off a whole chain of events that finally results in the reformation, the cultural reformation we all long to see. Who knows? Perhaps the prayers we offer together here corporately will knock over that first domino. As God's people... Let's pray, let's sing, let's serve, let's love, let's fulfill our responsibilities, let's be wise stewards, let's build community and build families, because that's how God builds new worlds. This is how God builds his kingdom. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.